Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but uh, you already knew that. You knew it. Hey, Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Crazy Money for a new decade. Are you happy about it? Are you thrilled about it? Do you know what you want from it? I hope it's going to be great for you and for me and for our respective families. And I'm excited. I'm excited to start a new year. I'm thrilled with what we accomplished in 2019. I'm so grateful to all the guests that lent their time and credibility and insights to the program. And I'm very, very grateful to you, the audience, for spending time with Crazy Money and for sharing it with your friends and whomever else you may have shared it with. I guess you wouldn't have shared it with your enemies. I don't know. Anyway, hope you also had great holidays. Hope you got a chance to rest up and prep for the new decade. Do you think about it as a decade? I think about it as a year, but whatever. You know, anyway, I hope it was great holidays. I sure had a good time. Spent a lot of time with the family. We took a little trip out to Tucson, Arizona, where we got to see our in-laws. They don't live there, but I'm not going to tell you where they live just because I want to be secretive. We did a lot of great stuff. I had the opportunity to do a guest spot at Laughs Tucson, which is a great club that packed the house and had an amazing audience right after Christmas. So that was a lot of fun. Thanks to everybody at Laughs for having me out there. Also spent a lot of time outdoors in Tucson. It wasn't as balmy and lovely and sunny as I would have liked it to be, but still warm enough and sunny enough to spend a lot of time outside. We did cool stuff. We went to the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum on the west side of Tucson. Man, that was beautiful. When you come over the mountains just west of downtown Tucson, you come down into this valley that is just filled with tens of thousands of saguaro cactuses that are giant and decades old. And it's just really dramatic and beautiful. And at the museum, we saw some snakes and coyotes and javelinas. And if there's anything my kids love, it's seeing animals. So that was awesome. We went to the Colossal Caves which is a pretty amazing uh, network of tunnels and caves that have been lit appropriately, maintaining the caveness at the same time. But they are also dark enough to where you can, if you're six foot two, uh, for example, hit your head on a stalactite and draw blood. (laughs) I'm just saying, I know somebody who did that, but it's mostly healed and thank you for your concern. Also, did some amazing hiking. I guess it wasn't that dramatic. It was just really pretty and good for the soul at a place called Sabino Canyon on the east side of Tucson near where we stayed. Man, that place is beautiful and I highly recommend it. It's weird. I find myself, Sabino Canyon, by the way, is uh, populated with lots of mountain lions. And when I say mountain lions, I do not mean bobcats. I do not mean lynx even though that is a fierce predator, especially in Division Three football. If you happen to go to Rhodes College, you, you get the joke. Mountain lions are like 300 pounds of taut muscle and predator desire. I found it kind of stimulating to be hiking through these beautiful hills and desert landscape, all knowing that at any moment I could be attacked by an animal that wants only to rip my liver through my throat. I found that to be somewhat compelling. I have the same feeling in Montana when I've had the opportunity to hike out there. It's like in Montana, you're not allowed to go get the newspaper from your driveway without taking bear spray. And there's something thrilling about knowing that you could be eaten at any time. I just love that. And so when I go someplace when I'm like, what kind of wildlife do you have here? And they say, oh, we have some, we have lovely birds. Birds, they can't kill me. I'm interested in your birds. I like going someplace where I could be mauled at any second. 
I think what I like about it is for some reason I think about it and that sets my brain off under these little fantasies that have nothing to do with the day-to-day worries of, of life and bill paying and how to earn a living or even my comedy career, whatever. It makes me wonder what would I do if I were attacked by a wild animal? What would I do in the moment of truth if a mountain lion jumped me from behind? Would I respond in that moment, would I have the wherewithal, the mental presence of mind to to know how to fight back and the strength to fight that wild animal off of me? I take the the fantasy to such an extent that I can see myself in the moment that not only do I fight it off, but that I turn it over on its back and I've got my hands around its throat. And as I'm looking into its eyes, it realizes that I'm the one in control. I'm the animal. I'm the one who knocks to quote Breaking Bad, and that in that moment where it sees that I could kill it, what do I do? I let it go, bro. I just let it go because that's who I am. I'm that chill that in that moment, even though this wild animal has torn my bicep in half and done a lot of damage to my Patagonia air pants that cost over $125, that I'm just going to let it go because it's a beautiful creature that deserves to live and After all, I was trespassing on its territory, not the other way around. So I got to let it go. Why? Because I not only want to prove my strength and mental toughness, I want to prove my virtue. Yeah. That is so sad if you think about it. (laughs) And that I have to fantasize about proving my virtue in such a dramatic, high stakes manner. No, I can't just go donate blood on a regular basis. Oh, no, I can't volunteer at a soup kitchen. Well, that's far too mundane and easy to do. I mean, after all, there's almost 0% chance of being attacked by a wild animal at a soup kitchen. I mean, the best you get is some crazy dude with like a Swiss army knife who's going to come at you with a corkscrew. You know, in that moment, I probably wouldn't spare his life. I don't know, because he's not a beautiful, wild, majestic animal. He's just some dirty human like me. I don't know. I just, I had these thoughts while I was hiking, thought I'd share them with you. Hope that wasn't too weird. Was it weird? Well, that's what goes on in my head. And this is going to be an awkward segue, but let me tell you about our guests on this week's episode of Crazy Money. They are Dr. Diana and Mr. Yoshi Sadiq, who are friends of mine who have been married for 13 years and have three children. I'll tell you more about them in just a second, but I'll tell you why I wanted to talk to them. Because after the episode where I interviewed my wife and we spoke frankly about the relationship we have with money and both respectively and individually... I got a lot of people reaching out and saying like, dude, that was bold. That was crazy. Or wow, what you all worry about or how you communicate resonates with us. I also had a lot of women reaching out to me on Facebook. That sounded wrong. I also heard from friends of mine's wives who said, wow, you really made me feel better about my husband because even though he's an anal prick, he's not nearly as bad as you are, which, you know, (laughs) okay, thanks. (laughs) anyway, I think it touched a nerve with a lot of people. And so I thought, well, why not, instead of just talking about my own marriage, why not let other people talk about theirs? And so Diana and Yoshi are a really unique couple. As I said, they've been married for 13 years and have three children. And what makes them unique is their cultural backgrounds. And because I think we all come at money based on where we come from and what our parents taught us, that this one was a really interesting perspective. Dr. Diana Sadiq is the daughter of Palestinian immigrants. She's an osteopathic physician, certified yoga teacher, and founder of Rehab Medicine and Wellness. Her husband, Yoshi, My comedy friend Yoshi is a first-generation Nigerian-American. He's a touring comedian, 
producer and a full-time technology marketing executive. As you'll hear, they've recently downsized their lifestyle to prioritize family and their respective passions and side hustles. I think it's a really interesting story about two really smart people who are working together to build the kind of life that they really want to live, a purposeful kind of life, a well-designed life, one might say, for themselves and for their beautiful children. So here, ladies and gentlemen, is my conversation with Dr. Diana and Mr. Yoshi Sadiq. I don't know how to like describe sort of like my financial mantra, but I don't think I spend a lot. I don't think I'm lavish, but I do think I'm probably much more middle of the road. And every once in a while, I'll buy something like crazy expensive. Just Like what? I bought a Tesla, which I had to do a PowerPoint presentation to my wife about. Tell me about that. (laughs) At the time, like we were both doing fine and we were both working, but I think it needed convincing. Like she just wasn't convinced that I needed a Tesla. Do you still have that PowerPoint? My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. I'm in your home. <laughs> yeah, I usually don't let comics in my home. That's usually a <laughs> that's a good that policy. <laughs> that is a good policy to keep your family safe away from your comedian yeah. friends. Very true. That's funny. When there's people in from out of town, other comics, I'm like, dare I offer to let them stay at our house? You know, I've offered, but no one's ever taken me up on it. Right. Which Just I, so you know, stoner, 30-year-old, yeah. we've got two kids that yes. are going to be awake at six in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so. Like I've said, yeah, 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 you should come through. And they're like, no, no, I'm good. And usually what I tell them is, oh, it's about 35 minutes away from the city. Yeah. So then they're like, yeah, yeah we'll, that's, that's not we'll find a couch. It's like that's a $60 cool. Uber. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yoshi and Diana Sadiq, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Today, I find myself in Alpha, are we in Alpharetta or Johns Creek? Johns Creek. Johns Creek, which is very lovely. We're on the line. On yeah. the line. On the, yeah. It's like eight mile, except for. <laughs> it's like point one it's, mile. Yeah. It's like North Atlanta's version of eight mile, yes. except there's a lot of green lawns and Buick. For sure. And HOAs and um, it, subdivisions. Lexus, Lexuses, Lexi. But there isn't a lot of Lexuses here. It's the beautiful thing. It's Johns Creek. It's not as rich as we thought it was. All right. Well, it's pretty nice. (laughs) Um, Will each of you please introduce yourselves? So my name is Diana. I'm the wife of Yoshi, (laughs) the mother of three amazing little kiddos, nine, seven, and four. And I am a physician and a yoga teacher and always reading and on the search for happiness and good habits. Yoshi, that was really good. Uh, my name is Yoshi Sadiq. I am a marketing executive. I'm a producer. I'm also a comedian. And I run uh, marketing for a technology firm here in Alpharetta, but I also produce a whole bunch of shows in the North Atlanta region. And then I tour as a working comedian as well, when my wife allows me to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd like to know how each of you grew up. Tell me a little bit about what your home lives were like when you were kids. My parents moved to the States from the Middle East in, gosh, well before I was born, 1966, I think it was. My father came for college. Where were they from? From, they're Palestinian, but Jordan and Syria is where their families were living. So my father came for college, then brought my mother over. He didn't know 
very much English, really didn't have any money, but got accepted at Texas A&M, which is a great engineering school, and that's what he wanted to do. And then they raised us. We stayed in, in the States in Texas. They raised us there. So growing up, it was, I wouldn't say a double life, but my father wanted us to feel American, be American, show to people I think we were American. And so for the most part, we were involved in school activities, band, cheerleading, all those kinds of things. But in the home, it was definitely still, we were still part of that Arab culture. That was who we were at home. That was ingrained in us. So I think our culture definitely influenced kind of our money talks, discussion, discipline, expectations, all of those things. So after your dad finished school, what kind of work did he do? He became an engineer. Stable work through your childhood? Yeah. Always stable work. He was at the same company from when he retired. Gosh, I forget when that was now, probably five years ago or so. He was there for 25 years as a city engineer. So kind of an upper middle class background? I think middle class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think when we were young, he was making, you know, he references it now and I should Mm -hmm. know this. (laughs) I promise dad I've listened to your stories. He references, I mean, I think we were lower middle class, but never did I feel like we were struggling. Mm. But then as we were older, and I think you're more aware of what people have and don't have and that kind of thing. I also felt like I had what I needed. Mm -hmm. We couldn't necessarily get the lavish things. And it wasn't portrayed to us that we couldn't afford it as much as we didn't need it. (laughs) It's interesting. You know, my mom always told us that we were middle class. And I think looking back, we were marginally upper middle class. Most people claim to be middle class when in fact, they're not. Like I read a statistic that 90, like 92% of Americans claim to be middle class. And that's not mathematically yeah. possible. Is there a yeah. number for middle class in terms of like what your average is? Like we know what lower is, like if you make like $15 or less. I, I mean, I suppose it means what the middle 50% of income, right? Gotcha. So it'd be, you know, if you're above the 25th percentile mm-hmm. and below the 75th, you're technically middle class. Sure. I mean, but I think what middle class means is you know, you have stable work, but you're not rich. You're not sending your kids to Ivy League institutions sure. because grandpa yeah. went to school there, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. but I don't know. I don't know. So it's interesting. Yeah. That's, that, it, it's funny. I mean, we could do a whole show on yeah. what does it mean to be middle class? Because in terms of, in terms of his set salary and what our bills were and everything, mm-hmm. we're probably upper middle class. But in mindset, yeah. I think we were middle class because we weren't getting all of these extra things. But did your parents save? Were they savers? Oh my goodness, yes. Right. And that's, so, and that's But see, the, that's the thing. So is middle class what you make or what you buy, right? Right, right. Because I often felt like we didn't have, you know, a lot of luxuries and stuff. But what we did have was economic stability because my dad right. was putting money in the bank and he was like, you don't need to buy all that crap. Let's save it for a rainy day yeah. so you can go yeah. to college and not have debt. Yeah, which that was is very old fashioned. Right. Yeah. All right, yeah. Yoshi, how about you? What was your home life like? I uh, technically was not born here. What? Uh, <laughs> I need to see your passport, <laughs> please. Originally from Nigeria, and mm-hmm. then my parents moved here probably in the middle of the 80s, and mm. 85 is when I got here. So, and I'd say uh, we started out pretty much as poor. Mm -hmm. Uh, is how I would describe it, at least based on where we were living, uh, which was the projects in Philadelphia. And so- How old were you when you came? uh, Five or six, Mm. five or six years old. And so we lived in the projects for a good amount of years, but my father was very much an intellectual Mm. even by then. So he was a university professor. I think he had his PhD by that time. He's got so many degrees, I've kind of lost count. But What's of, his field of study? He studies religion. So he is a religion professor. He studies... Big money um, in that. 
Yeah, tons. So he studies African religions, Islam, Christianity, world religions, Muslim and Christian relations, theology, lots of different stuff, but he's very much like... He's a reader. He's like one of those. He's truly the definition of a college professor. Where did he teach when you were growing up? He taught a couple places. So we were at Temple University in Philadelphia, and then we moved to Richmond, Virginia, where he taught at VCU, Virginia mm-hmm. Commonwealth. And mm-hmm. then we landed at Texas Christian University in 92. And so that's where he's taught ever since. And oh, he still wow. teaches there till today. He's been there for a very long time. I don't even know how many years that is, but... He's still there. So when you got here, your dad was a struggling graduate student. Yeah, struggling graduate student type, but he already has like his master's and I think he was working on his PhD. Mm. I don't know the specifics, but he already had his like a couple of masters from Saudi Arabia and then was working on another one at Temple University and then went to VCU and then went to TCU. But yeah, that's, you know, just religion professor, very much education minded person who's like, if you do education, you will get very far in this life. So as you're growing up, what kind of financial stress was there in your house as you became, as you went from being six to 12 yeah, to 18? Yeah. So my parents did a really good job of not really letting us see how badly we were struggling. <laughs> uh, but we knew we were struggling based on where we lived, mm-hmm. like the projects, like it's pretty bad. And so I saw some really wild stuff just as a child, just living in a very not safe environment. And I think, you know, our parents realized that. And then when the opportunity came to like be out of there, Mm. we moved very, very quickly. So we were in Philly for probably like five years before we moved. And then when we did move to Richmond, it was not the project. So it was pretty much, I'd say it was probably middle-class at that moment, but we still lived in apartments for a while. And then I don't think we bought our first house till he finally got the job in Texas. And so we were just living sort of moving around and we moved a couple of times even in Richmond just from one apartment to the other. And the thought process I think is we moved because of money. But my parents never shared like any kind of financial struggle with us. But like we didn't feel like we weren't taken care of. We didn't really ask for things. My parents are just naturally cheap anyway. And so just as immigrant Nigerians, everything we did was just on a budget. And then my mom worked multiple jobs and had multiple gigs. I think she had like two, three jobs at one time. Doing what? She was a nurse. She took care of old people at like hospice. She cooked. She worked in the kitchen at some places. She worked at restaurants. So like a combination of different types of stuff. And then even my father was also a janitor while he was going to school right? as well in Philadelphia. So I saw the struggle. But I think for me, that was just like, oh, all immigrants go through this. So that was sort of my, I guess the, the blueprint that I saw is like, okay, as an immigrant, you just got to work anywhere and everywhere to see this. And that was so different than my experience. Yeah, (laughs) really? Well, because my dad had always provided a stable environment for us. We always had what we needed. Money was always around. Mm. So it didn't seem like a struggle to get. I just, I don't think I I don't think I asked for that much. Maybe I did, but <laughs> but it wasn't a struggle for us. He would praise us with money. That was his love language. So what do you mean yeah. he pra- you would well, get money for a reward? For every A we got, I think we got a hundred dollars or something. Wow. I mean, he would yes, yeah. education was the number one important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I mean don't, for him as well. I'm not gonna let my kids hear that. Yeah, we don't let our kids hear it either. <laughs> but he's now, even now, gives my kids a hundred dollars every time he sees them. Does and he really? Four. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they love them. It buys a lot of Legos and Pokemon. Well, we tell them we're putting it in their college fund. Yeah, yeah. Yoshi, how does the experience of growing up in the projects inform how you think about money today? Do you see echoes or shadows of that in your fears today? You know, I think not necessarily. I would say that my financial sort of, I guess, maturity has changed. And I definitely believe like getting an education helps you because it helps you at least find some level of skill that no matter what, if push come to shove and something was to happen, I know that I've got enough skills to go get a job regardless of Mm -hmm. like what it took. But, you know, I'm still a little cheap, but at the same time, like I'll spend on things when I like really passionate about it. So I think, I don't know how to like describe sort of like my financial mantra a little bit, but I don't think I spend a lot. I don't think I'm lavish, but I do think I'm probably much more middle of the road. And every once in a while, I'll buy something like crazy expensive. Just Like what? I bought a car. I bought a Tesla, which I had to do a PowerPoint presentation to my wife about. Tell me about that. <laughs> but like, so at the time, like we were both doing fine and we were both working. But like, I think it was just, it needed convincing. Like she just wasn't convinced that I needed a Tesla. And I was just so like, I really want this car. But I also promised that once I had the car, I'm not getting anything else, which I haven't gotten anything else. Right. And we'd pass it along to the kids. And also, you know, I take care of it and all this other stuff. And then we paid it off and all these things. So like, do you still have that PowerPoint? I think we're going to have to put that on the, on the, uh, <laughs> on the show. Page. How to convince your wife. Yeah. How to convince your wife. But here's a crazy part. Like, I think, you know, outside of that, I do, I think it worked, but I think we all got on the same page about it. And she was a fan, like after mm. the presentation, but it wasn't like a physical presentation, but I did like put slides together and put like pros and cons and at the time we did save a lot because there were some federal rebates with the car right as well so yeah. you know, that was the cheapness that was in. the cheapness coming frugalness, out like, which i yeah, appreciate the, yeah so i was like okay yeah sure yeah as we talk about the frugalness like i used a discount on our first date oh, well. like, <laughs> yeah he's <used> the- <laughs> tell me you pulled out the entertainment the entertainer coupon yeah, yeah. Book? no like the student discount yeah, at yeah the we, were, we were at the movies and we were no longer students but i was like hey you got your idea you. oh that's hilarious <laughs> and i was proud of him and what did you know? <laughs> she was very proud <laughs> what'd that make you think about him it's like oh okay yeah well again i mean well it's funny because we grew up so differently and i remember when he told me his Mom had all of these jobs and that was just foreign to me because my mom was a stay at home mom, even though she had her, she worked at NASA before us, which we blew our minds because <laughs> then she was a stay at home mom. So in all of my friends, nobody was working multiple jobs and having all these side gigs. So when he told me about it, that about his mom, that was kind of a whole nother world. So how old were you when you went on this first date? Oh gosh. 22, 21. Still in school? I was in medical school. And I was just finishing school. Like That's just, fair to pull out the student discount. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, Jerry Seinfeld says that if you um, ask for a doggy bag on a date, you should tell the waiter, you might as well wrap up my genitals too because <laughs> you're not going to be needing those that night. <laughs> so you didn't think, but it didn't turn you off when he used a No, a it didn't. I, probably in my mind, it was, I'm really proud of him for doing that, but I'm probably not going to include that detail to my friends. <laughs> So would you describe yourself as a frugal person, Diana? Yeah, I would. I'm getting more to, I think I'm shifting as well. And I'm getting more to kind of the idea of minimalism. And I'd rather buy something of really good quality and that I love 
and spend more on it than kind of all of the other little bits and pieces. So I'm converting. When you were a kid, what did you define as rich? How would you have thought of somebody? Like what indications would there that somebody else would be rich? You know, I think for me it was real simple when we saw like other Nigerians, because I grew up in a very multicultural sort of environment because my father was an imam and was part of like a lot of different mosques and stuff. And so we were like part of a Nigerian mosque, part of a, a Palestinian mosque, part of an Arab mosque. And so I grew up around a lot of different cultures. And crazy enough, it was the car. Like the car was the definition of like what kind of wealth that you had. And so, you know, we drove a Nissan Datsun uh, for very many years. A Nissan Datsun? Yeah. Datsun became Nissan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the original, like back in like the 80s, it was just this two door. Like a B210? Yeah, yeah. It was just a very like, you know, and then we had like the Chevy, like this four door Chevy Chevrolet that was literally like a, it was like a, like America's attempt at a Beetle. Mm -hmm. Remember those cars? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so like a car was how I defined sort of wealth. And so we knew that some of our friends had a lot of wealth because they had like Lexuses and, you know, uh, even like a Toyota Highlander and all that other stuff was how I defined like wealth to people. And then I had friends who were very, very wealthy who we go to their houses and you had to call in and they had to sign you up and, you know, they had to, sign you on a list and you had to be on the list to get into the house. So they had to be called, you know, kind of like a gate person. Right. And I was like blown away. I was like, what? <laughs> like this actually exists. And so, but it was, yeah, it was just, that's how I defined it overall. It was just cars and possessions. Do you think that that informed some of the desire to get that Tesla? No, I don't because mainly cause like I've never, been like a car person and I didn't get the Tesla. So I was like, I was 35 when I got the Tesla, like mm -hmm. I was working, but I never bought a car. I've never, so every car I've had before literally paid in cash and just like traded in for one and then got another one. So right. my car sort of economics was never defined by trying to get a car. I just really loved the vehicle. And I think for me being a digital technology person, it was like in my bones, like, I don't feel complete if I don't have this car. Like, <laughs> I'm in this space, you know what I mean? So, like, it was a whole different, like, I wanted the car to define who I was. When I was in the market for a new car, I drove a 911, a Porsche 911, and I was mm -hmm. like, I don't need this. And then I went and I test drove a Tesla, and I was yeah. like, I need this. Yeah. I want this. This yep. is a statement. It's yes. not just the car. Yes. It's about the future of technology. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I fell victim to that as well. <laughs> Did you see him falling victim to that, Diana? Yes, very much so. Yeah. I'm, and I'm not a materialistic, I don't think I'm a materialistic person really much at all. Mm -hmm. And even growing up, you asked that question, I'm sitting here thinking, I don't really recall feeling like... Other people had more? Other people like, oh, they're so rich. Mm. Um, and if I did... <laughs> The only thing I would think maybe is people who are going on vacations and maybe that's because we would go on local ones, but, and then to the Middle East to see family, but nothing. Which is a far more expensive trip than going to Disneyland <laughs> right? just to get there. But, <laughs> but you know, it's, that's, it doesn't seem that exciting, right? Right. right. As a We're, kid, you know, yeah. other people are going you to. You get to go to Orlando? <laughs> I have to go to Jordan again. <laughs> I know. Now I would love yeah. to do that. I get, no kidding. I'd love yeah. to go. And you guys went like every We went other every other summer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How long did you date? And when you finally got married, did you make specific plans as to how you were going to handle money inside your marriage? Like, I think 
before we got together, we definitely talked about money and talked about a little bit about sort of our feelings about it, but we didn't make like any specific plans necessarily. And then I think a lot of it was also informed by a little bit by our parents, a little bit of sort of how the money thing came up, but not really. <laughs> what does that mean? It was informed by your parents. So, okay. <laughs> like, we may or may back. not edit this in the, in the post. No, no. So <laughs> I do think we come from very different um, money backgrounds, obviously. Yeah. And my perception of money has obviously been steered from my background, which was, you know, you save, save, save. Really, that's the, you work and you save. And you spend some here and there, but nothing lavish or extravagant. Yoshi's background of money, I think he's frugal, but will spend on some things. Yeah. So going into marriage, we knew that we had differing. I do remember some heated discussions about kind of how we settle in the middle of all of that. And then when it was like really even closer time to get married, and I think you had some debt when we first got married, which was like the biggest no-no in the world to my family. Mm-hmm. So, but he paid that off maybe even before we got married or, or rather quickly. It wasn't an issue, but in my mind and you know, my family side, it was this big issue. So, (laughs) so it was an issue, I think, to my family's side. Mm -hmm. We kind of overlooked that. Yoshi and I overlooked that to be like, okay, where are we moving this forward or are we not? So we overlooked it, moved forward, got married and kind of have just been I wouldn't even say working on the money. I think we've just kind of settled in the middle um, where we just have conversations about anything big we buy, but we honestly don't buy a whole lot of big things. Yeah. Yoshi, was it painful to you that they had a problem with your debt? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was not cool at all. I think there was a level of like respect that I had for the whole, like, I know it's going to sound crazy, but it, it felt like a process. It felt like like going through like, you know, Tony Robbins, like coal fire thing on your feet of like, okay, if I get through this, then I get to marry this woman that I love. Mm. Um, So that's kind of how it felt a little bit in terms of like, you know, you have this debt, all this other stuff. And I was like, yeah, sure. I've got the debt, but I also have a job. I'm well-educated. I'm really good at this. Oh, and by the way, I've got like three jobs. So even at that time, I think the thing that I think Diana realized is like, I know how to hustle. Like I can go get things when like needed. And so, yeah, even when the issue of like my debt came around, like I paid it off before we actually physically got married. Cause I was like, okay, I'm not going to let this be like a thing that her family kind of holds over my head. <laughs> There's like a at the end of the day. Yeah. So you had to prove to them that you were your own man. Yeah. 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 Yes. It was, yeah, it was not comfortable, but you know, I feel like we got through it, but it wasn't like a fun time. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. But, yeah. Also, again, with my family's history of our financial thoughts, mostly my dad's financial thoughts, um, he paid for all of our college, like me and my other two sisters, all of it in cash, never had any debt, because that's just the way things He are brought done. cash over to the, the, the <laughs> registrar. <laughs> yeah. or so like, like, the yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very immigrant thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Um, same with all his car, you know, anytime we bought a car, it was cash showing up with cash or you don't buy it. Right. So 
so I mean that's the mindset that was going into this marriage. Like, what you're going to marry somebody who has debt? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just a crazy thought. It well, is to I don't them. know. I mean, it might be old fashioned. Maybe we're yeah. missing a little bit of that in today's world. That yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like and debt isn't as cool as people have come to accept it to be. Yeah, no, very true. But I think like the thing was, it wasn't like it was like a lot of debt, right? So mm. I went to school on a in essence, 95% scholarship because my father worked at the school that I right. So the debt that I incurred was basically just a straight up living expenses, just like just to live for like last couple of years. And, you know, I got kicked out of my house like at like 19 or something like that because I was living at home too, going to school. And then like me and my father just clashed on sort of just rules. And so when I moved out, like I needed to borrow money sort of just to like live. And I did. And then I figured it out. And then after that, that's when I met Diana. But like, yes, I had debt, but it wasn't, it wasn't like the end all be all. So it felt like such a much bigger thing than it actually was. Yeah. At the time it felt like a huge thing. And now in retrospect, I mean, we have 13 years of marriage under our, (laughs) under our belt to prove we could last. You know, look, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, before a guy, before somebody marries your daughter, you're probably going to be thinking, is this guy in it for the long run? And for sure, you know, right. what is he looking for from? Yeah. And you'll think the same thing with your, with your sons, obviously too. It's like, you know, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, some gold digger coming after the Sadiq fortune. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think even with us, like we definitely got through it, but it was definitely a time where it was like, is this like going to be a thing? Like, right. Is right. this going to be a regular occurrence of people sort of peeping into looking over your shoulder, looking over our shoulders over the stuff that we did. Unfortunately, it's never been a thing. Like it's no, it never has never ever has come up or anything, but not just that. I think, is this going to be a thing between us? Yeah. Not just, you know, somebody else looking over. Mm -hmm. So who pays the bills? I pay most of the bills. I don't think you have any bills. I think there was a time when you did have some of the bills that you had to take care of, but I pay most of the bills. I, mean, I we, usually all I mean, our the bill comes joint. in. The, okay, but the water bill comes in. How does it get paid? I pay it. Yeah, I take care of mostly all the finances in the house. I'm trying to think if there's yeah, like in terms of just the bills that come in, and then I mean, oh, and come to find out, this is the one that has a loan. This one has debt. <laughs> I went to medical school. <laughs> <laughs> so I came into this bad boy debt free. Nice. And this one has a huge debt over there. Nice. Um, it will pay itself back. It one will, day. obviously. But in teaching yeah, yeah. yoga. In Just teaching kidding. yoga. <laughs> okay. So okay. So the bill comes in. You pay it. Now, if you want to go buy uh, something at the store, or if, is there a purchase amount level beyond which you have to talk to your spouse about approval? You know, I don't think there is. So he comes home with a new Rolex. That's not going to be a discussion. That is going to be a discussion, but he knows that. <laughs> yeah, like, and I would never do that. Like I. So what's like, the level though? Is it a thousand dollars? I don't think we've said it. No, we've I've, never said it. I feel it. like it would be like if I was going to buy something for two hundred dollars, I'd probably call Yosh and say, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Mm, yeah, like I don't um, think we. There's never like a limit, but like, yeah, we've never broached the subject of like, is there a limit that you can just freely just go buy anything without talking to the other person. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think we respect each other enough to not do that because we know it's our money Mm. per se. So even if I wanted to buy like a $5,000 Rolex, I'd 
basically just try to convince her, hey, babe, I'm thinking about buying this Rolex. It's going to look really cool on me. Um, I'll send pictures. You know what I'm saying? Like, I would just try to do the convincing. And if she's like, all right, cool. And the, honestly, the majority of the time, even though I've never purchased anything of like that nature, we're actually pretty good about just letting the person spend on whatever they want. I don't feel like we've had like a stoppage point. Probably the only thing we won't like overdo it is like travel stuff. We're like, okay, that feels a little too expensive. But we're trying to change that, right? Yeah, we're trying. Yeah. Well, how does that show up? The travel stuff? I mean, I think we're both on the same page of not, like sometimes it'll get to a certain point where we're like, ah, oh, that seems like a little excessive. And so we haven't, but we are trying to change that because that is one of those things that's like experiences over things, right. you know, and yeah. memory, making memories with each other and with the kids. So yeah. we do want to change that. And I think my limitation in my head has been that we don't have a travel like budget, like this is how much you have this year. And then we would just freely spend that if we had one. So that's our goal for this year is to make one. Do you have a budget overall? Yes and no. It's not... Yeah. It's not anything set in stone, but like... It's not great. We save money, we spend money, and then if for any big purchases, like we can go and dip into the savings to go get it if we need it. But we, we have all the money like set to go into all of our savings mm -hmm. and yeah. more ones and all of that first. Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. we have what we're left with. Yes. Is one of you more conservative about money than the other? I am more conservative, right? Do you agree? That you're more conservative yes. about money? I'm more conservative about life. Yes. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> um, I think I approach things with more caution. Yeah. And that's probably from my just family too. I feel like that's how I was yeah. raised. You don't take a lot of risk. Well, I would say I took a big risk. <laughs> In marrying Yoshi? <laughs> that too. That broke ass Yoshi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. How did you take a risk? Well... I did take a risk with Yoshi. <laughs> you did? No, but with leaving work, I was, you know, working at the same place for nine years, eight years, nine years as a physician there and kind of just got to the point that I wanted to change and wanted to reprioritize life and, um, and left. So you were practicing osteopathy? Osteopathic medicine, correct? So practicing medicine, I am an osteopathic physician. Sorry, I don't, I'm, I'm not clear what that is. Yeah. So and I was, which is why I mispronounced it. That's okay. <laughs> so tell, tell me what you were doing, uh, What th this is what you had studied to practice. Right. And you borrowed money to do it. And now you're, right. now you're changing <laughs> careers. Right. Which is not something that's fiscally responsible to do. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm not, I'm here to, um, I'm here to, for you guys to talk. But yes. And We've, we've done a really good job paying <laughs> oh, we have. back some of those loans, but there is a little bit left. What did you like about your work and why are you looking for something new? So, I mean, I worked hard to get where I was and I think that was a big yeah. component was I put in a lot of years. It's, it's all I even knew. It's how I identified myself being a doctor. So that was a big thing. And then mostly what I was doing is treating people with pain. Mm -hmm. um, and so of course I enjoyed helping people and being the listening ear for them and providing them with. Hey, before I leave, can I get a prescription? please? <laughs> I'll give you ibuprofen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's no fun. Uh, so, so I of course enjoyed, you know, uh, trying to help others and trying to serve others. And I enjoyed working like with other people and coworkers and camaraderie. So that's what I loved. 
So the the downfall, I think over a couple of years, I got to a place where I just felt like I was missing out on the rest of, you know, what was going on the 40 hours I was working a week, what was going on the other, those hours. So with whom? I know, right? With all the little <laughs> kids that we have. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So two of them were in school. One of them was at home. You still. had parental FOMO. Yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. And just missing out on my job required a 30 day notice to miss work. So wow. Yeah. So like, and, and Yoshi just couldn't understand that. He's like, what do you mean? Like, you can't just take off. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. None of us, we get penalized. Like if we take off with either bonus money or whatever. And I understand the concept of not wanting to cancel on patients, sure. but at the same time it was, it was restricting in that way. And so, I mean, even one of my partners was like green in the face throwing up and he was still there working because wow. you did not want to miss. <laughs> so, so in eight years, I never missed a day except when I was, went into crazy? labor, mm-hmm. like and had maternity. Cal leave. Ripken. <laughs> I know. Um, so it was a great place though. But I think I got to the point that I was like reflecting just kind of on the days passing. And is this how I want to spend these days? And, and if I were to have some illness tomorrow and be on my deathbed, am I okay with how I spent my time? And so how do you want to spend it now? Just want to spend it being more purposeful and feeling more passionate kind of about the moments in my day. So now I'm spending my days, actually all the kids are in school now, but I am able to, it's that flexibility I think that I was missing. I'm able to, you know, go to any of their events, um, stay home when they're sick or when they need to stay home. I did get certified to teach yoga, which was a process in itself, which we can talk about, but after leaving. Um, so I teach yoga and spend a lot of time kind of reading mindfulness books and self-development books. So how long has it been? I left for the most part two years ago. And the first month was probably like really exciting and enjoyable and felt like I was on a vacation. (laughs) And then, um, it was, then it was kind of the shock that you probably felt, (laughs) um, when you leave of, oh my gosh, what did, what am I doing? Like that is who I am. And I left that now. What am I? Right. And am I okay only being a mom and not having other identifying names for myself? Are you? You know, all in all, if at the end of the day, if that's what I, all I was known for, then yes. But in the day to day, especially now that the kids are at school, right. I want to be involved in other things and I want to be labeled in other ways. Now, Yoshi harbors horrible professional ambitions as well. <laughs> so, Yoshi, you've, you've kind of scaled in and out of the professional world over the past few years as well. How do you guys balance sort of having a little bit of financial stability and each of you pursuing your own passions? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'll be honest. I, I want to say, like, it's just good to have, like, an amazing partner who can support you when you like want to try something. And are um, you the amazing partner in this scenario or is she probably a little bit of both? Okay. But we've both done it. We've both been that. Yeah. yeah. So like she's going through her thing like now two years, two years ago. And at that time I had a gig and I was like, yeah, do that shit. Like Mm -hmm. awesome. You were working for a big consulting firm. Yeah. I was working for a big consultant. I was like, yeah, let's go ahead and just do that. But before that consulting gig, I started comedy and I was about a year in and I was like, honey, 
I really want to do this comedy thing. <laughs> um, Don't and, do it. Yeah, and I went and like, I wanted to go all in. And so like, and I talked to my wife and she was like, yeah, I fucking support you. And in that moment I was like, wow, this is kind of scary. But like in that time period, so I was like a year, year and a half in into doing a comedy and then literally went full time comedy. In that time period, I got really good at comedy and really good at like, like writing and the process and just like the physicalness of comedy, but I wasn't getting any mm. more booked or any of the stuff that actually paid you money, that wasn't happening, but I was getting better at comedy. And so that probably went on for like a year, maybe. It went on for like a little while before then I got a gig and I was like, okay. Cause I liked consulting. Like I enjoy consulting. I enjoy doing like technology stuff. So in that time period, like I was actually okay not working. And so I was just dedicated to the art form. Right. But it wasn't bringing in any kind of income or any kind of like, and I wasn't doing too many side gigs even at the time because I wanted to like, so I'd spend like my days writing, going to Starbucks, writing, just getting good at the craft. And like I took classes and all these other things and just trying to like perfect the art form. And then I think I started to learn about the comedy business and realized that that wasn't just, it wasn't going to scale at all. But I also realized that I wasn't learning comedy enough to figure out how to then scale the business itself. So that's what has taken me time. And honestly, like I feel I'm, I'm like I'm decent at comedy at this point. But I figured out a little bit of the business, and now I kind of know how to like make an income from comedy as a side hustle, though as not a as a side primary, hustle, not as a primary thing. Right. But you know, I've written down what it would take for me to like fully switch to full-time comedy. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a huge thing. It's just working. I mean, I think for me, it's definitely sort of the producer angle right. and putting on shows and or owning like a comedy club or right. something of that nature. I think for me, it was like, you got to move up the food chain when it comes to comedy. From the business side, the, this, this is my theory on comedy, on mm-hmm. making a living in comedy. Yeah, Let's say you're in the 93rd percentile of the corporate world. You make a great living. If you're in the 96th percentile of regular comedians, you can't pay your rent. Yeah. That's a, that's a great way of <laughs> You can't it. even, yeah. you don't know where your next meal is coming For from. For sure. That's a great way of and, putting it. And there's comics in the 98th percentile who have done incredible stuff that mm-hmm. can't, you can't make a living unless you're one of 800 people. Yeah. Great point. Great, <laughs> great point. It's hard. Like, it's super hard. But, I mean, I also realize that, like, I enjoy that production side because I think at right. the end of the day for me it was about sort of just providing entertainment to people and if I could be a part of that entertainment even better but like just from a production perspective I've put on shows uh, that show that you were on with me and it was um, a great show in Duluth it was like, amazing it was an amazing show <laughs> and I enjoyed every part of it right like that's the part that I was like yes like that's the part that brings me so much joy yes the 10 minutes that I did like up front was awesome but the whole thing was much more magical. I thought it peaked somewhere around the time I was on stage. I'm not sure if you felt that or not. <laughs> I thought it felt like it did to me. I'm, I'm, I don't want to say it did or didn't. No, you did awesome. Thank you. And yeah. thank you for having me on that show. <laughs> Watching him explore his creative dreams inform how you thought about departing your mainstream corporate job. And I don't mean mainstream in a pejorative way. I just mean like your stable mm-hmm. job. With a paycheck and health benefits and all that good stuff. I wasn't thinking about it then. When he left his, I don't think it had even crossed my mind that I would even consider Yeah, it leaving. wasn't. It wasn't. Like, I don't um, think that even crossed I think, our minds. No, overall. not at all. 
And honestly, if I'm honest with us, if I didn't have such a good paying job, I don't think I would be this awesome wife of go do it. You know, mm. I mean, I think it makes a huge difference that our salaries are at, we're at a level that we could do it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, fortunate. Very, so, very fortunate. Yeah. Very fortunate in that way. And I, I'm starting to wonder if we have some kind of limiting belief on our, <laughs> of, of our income, because when one of us gets to a certain level, the other one drops out. <laughs> <laughs> Like, huh? Can't wait till you go back to work. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little afraid to go back ever, to does work. Does he ever drop the like, you know, like job listings on you? Oh, honey, look what I found on Indeed.com. You just happen to be on the on the medicine professions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're it's funny because we are very patternish to some degree. We've followed some patterns in the well, last Yoshi's, couple years. Yoshi's, I think, thoughts and have definitely influenced my ability to kind of think outside of the box or let go a little bit. I mean, so you've spent two years working on, on you doing yoga Mm -hmm. and reading a lot and all that. Do you have a vision for what the next few years look like? Do you want to turn this into a more of a career or what balance is there that you'd like to strike? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, the past two years have been amazing and about, self-discovery with first freaking out and what am I doing? And then, you know, going on a path and a search to find it. But my goal is definitely to have balance in whatever way that means. My balance is of course, with the family being my number one priority, but also, you know, listening to my own needs and what interests me and what I'm passionate about. So I have definitely, you know, found this amazing, great passion in um, yoga and mindfulness. And I, my goal is to incorporate that with my medical background and my knowledge of pain and and spine and the osteopathic component, which is brings in a lot of hands-on treatments for for muscles and pain. Um, so my goal is to combine all of those things and help people or help clients who have pain who maybe aren't getting better or improving with standard medicine, especially those patients who get told, you know, there's nothing wrong with you or, you know, your MRI is fine, but here they are still having a lot of this muscle pain. So those are the people that I really want to want to help. Um, I also have a dream, I think, and even another long-term dream is to um, work with life coaching medical students and just anxiety and fear and all of those things I think that are amplified by going to medical school and residency and being told so often you don't know enough. (laughs) So... That's, I would love to do that. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit to your culture, your respective culture, but also your common one. You are both, I believe, practicing Muslims, correct? Yeah. How does being a practicing Muslim affect your approach to money, if at all? Um, I think we use our Muslim faith and background mostly for our ideas of giving Mm -hmm. um, and contributing. So that's one thing we've, we will never have an argument about yeah. if Yoshi says, you know, I want to give the mosque $5,000 or my family $5,000. I'm like, if we have it, go ahead. So I think that's. Yeah. From the charitable perspective, it doesn't, I think we, I know I definitely grew up to where my parents gave not only their money, but like their time and like their weeks and like just their bodies. And like, like, you know how people go to church on like Wednesdays and Thursdays, like, we were at the mosque like almost every day doing something. Um, but a lot of it was like 
you know, as a kid, it was just mostly hanging out with friends. So, right. Like it's your second home. Yeah. It was like a second home. And then we still like learning about the religion and stuff like that. But also just, you know, I think it informed sort of who we are and how we approached everything. So the money aspect, there wasn't any like rules from the religion perspective on how to approach it. I mean, we've got rules around, you know, after, uh, Ramadan, there's a certain amount that you got to give, uh, and we set that money apart and we give it. There's, you know, kind of like that's tithing. Um, and so those things that we just make sure that we always do. But yeah, that's how it's... I'm trying to think if there's other ways that it affects it, but I'm not sure if it does. Okay. Good. Does that help? No, I mean, I think I think Islam is a religion not understood by yeah, yeah, the yeah. majority of Americans and certainly the majority of my listeners. And For sure. So I'm just interested in saying like, are there any priorities that, and then you just answered the question, but are there priorities that, that we wouldn't think of that, that approach? I mean, I was raised Catholic and, you know, there's certainly the tithe that is part of it, but there's also this subculture of guilt and shame of, there's almost, I think people have a hard time accepting the fact that being successful financially is an okay thing, that, that there's almost a discouragement away from business or financial success in some religions that yeah that doesn't i mean even if you, even with all the good that you could do with money we were never encouraged to be successful which i guess is a good thing yeah it was always about just sort of like you know but yeah it was, it was almost like wouldn't you be ashamed if you had a if you had a nice car or a big house you know it's funny i think it's completely opposite um or at least the way that i grew up mm-hmm. like it was encouraged that you go get it Really? Yeah. It was encouraged that you go get as much as you possibly can. And I don't know if it was necessarily as much as you can from like the world as in like, I think for us as immigrants, it was like America's paying people a lot of money. Go get that money from America kind of thing. It was very much like a... No. Like, like, oh, edit that. (laughs) (laughs) Say that again. Say it again. Say it again. Well, tell guess, me, t- t- is listeners it, know very little about yeah, Islam. Yeah. No, 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 no. But <laughs> go like, take Americans' money. <laughs> <laughs> I guess from an immigrant perspective, it yeah. was like you come to this country to get like for for freedom, freedom and for, financial. for like financial like stability. Mm-hmm. So go get it. And so I think for us, it was just very much try to get as much as you possibly can. And then when it came to like the mosque and stuff, they were like they liked people that had money. They leverage people that had money to build facilities and basketball courts and more things. I think all religions they, have yeah, that exactly. in common. Like, hey, let's so, get yeah, as so they many hit rich up parishioners as we can. Yeah, so they'll hit up people just like blatantly. Hey, yeah. Dr. So-and-so, we saw that you know you, got a, you were on the cover of uh, America's Best Doctors or whatever. Right. <laughs> how'd you like to build a gym? <laughs> yeah, how'd you like to build a gym in your honor kind of thing. So right. it was encouraged. It wasn't... To your point, and to those people are celebrated in, inside the mosque community. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I would say so. those people are very much celebrated. But, but those people are also giving back. To the they're mosque. also giving back. They're, they're not just like giving mis- money. There's definitely they're also giving their time. They're also like volunteering. They're also like doing a whole lot more than just giving like money. Right. Um, overall, but and there's. So. I mean, I don't feel like it. when I think about maybe the Muslims viewpoint or other Muslim people that were around their viewpoint of like celebrities, let's say not even other Muslim people, but celebrities who have tons of money. And I don't think it's the money part that is the negative aspect. It's kind of what they're doing with their, yeah. What do you do with time with and yeah, their with, popularity and their fame yeah. and that kind mean, of thing. Meaning do they live the faith? Are they an example of yes. the values? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And money is just, 
one aspect of it. Like, right. Or leveraging that is one aspect of it. Both of you are arguably living the American dream. Do you believe that America is still the land of opportunity? Yes, I do. I think just America provides a really good way of finding out what you're good at and then trying to go achieve that dream. And I think it feels like, at least from where I'm sitting and sort of the people that I hang around and the people that like, people are kind of tired of the hamster wheel kind of motion and really trying to figure out like, what is it that they're passionate about and go towards that. And then you're seeing people who are passionate about things really get success, which sort of reinforces you don't have to do this thing that supposedly you were told is the only way that you can be successful in this country. Right. And I think that's super important. I think sort of trying to live that even with our kids, you know, back to it. I think that's something I'm really proud of is like my kids know that I go to work, but they actually know me more for my side hustle. They're like, oh, daddy's going to go DJ. Oh, daddy's going to go do comedy. But yes, do I do go to work every day to, you know, that's the stuff that pays the bills. But I still want them to see that I also do things that I'm super passionate about. And that's important to me. Diane, any thoughts about that? Just kidding. <laughs> Whatever you say, handsome. <laughs> Keep bringing in those paychecks. <laughs> Funny. Well, you know, you mentioned your children and culturally from your parents, you all are the transition generation. Yeah. Your kids are hundred percent American. For sure. Right. What do your grandparents think of kind of the way your kids live their lives? Sorry, sorry. What do your parents think of the way yeah. your kids yeah. live their lives? And do they worry about mixing with sort of that American consumerist culture? I think my parents are, it's a good question. And I actually somewhat want to ask them <laughs> the real answer. Um, <laughs> but I think that... By the way, we have the same, my parents, I think, look at my kids and go, holy crap, <laughs> are these kids spoiled? <laughs> but yeah. I don't think that mine do think that ours are spoiled. If anything, they probably like, why don't you buy them some more things? <laughs> because again, dad my is dad is about the money. I mean, that's how he shows his love. And, and so yeah. the kids are loving that right now, right. but, and but the expectation to that, adopt anybody else yeah. <laughs> and the expectation that because Diana is a doctor, it's like, why don't you do it? Like, obviously you do well. So how come these kids don't have yeah. more stuff? Actually, I think from a, from a kid standpoint, I think they're actually really proud of, of how the kids For are sure. doing. The kids are behavior wise, really good. All of those kinds of things. If from a materialistic standpoint, I think it's actually the opposite I think my parents are a little confused <laughs> about really? like, you know, I've, I've followed the path of how it should be in terms of you get this, you do this, you do this, you get a good job. And then all of a sudden I'm backtracking. Like mm. what? Did that confuse Why? them? Why? Yeah, I think so. I don't know that they fully they didn't acknowledged it. it. Yeah. Like I think they yeah. denied it mm. a little bit. Yeah. They were definitely um, denial. But that's okay. You know, I mean- I'm going to get back doing something. It's yeah, right. So I'm okay And even if that. you don't. And even if I don't. It's okay. Yeah. So for example, we sold our, when we decided to make this whole shift, it was not just let me leave my job. It was, okay, you know what? Let's reevaluate what our priorities are. And materialistic things was not a priority. And so we sold our home and moved to further in the suburbs mm. and moved to a smaller house. Um, wow. Your other house must've been pretty big. It was big and beautiful. That was the hardest <laughs> part for Yoshi. Do you miss that house? I do, but I, I yeah. enjoy this more. Like I enjoy sort of like being able to just live a much simpler 
kind of thing. Because I think one of the things that we were doing is just trying to keep up with the Joneses. And I think one of the phrases that we said is like, fuck the Joneses. We're just <laughs> I don't gonna, think I said that. but <laughs> I said it for sure. And I was like, fuck the Joneses. We're going to just live for the Sadiqs. And I think sort of defining who we are was part of that transition. And so, yeah, we moved out. We were like, okay, let's not try to chase because we were it felt like we were chasing we were always trying to just keep up paint a pool guy paint and paint the yard like guy all and, this all the stuff yeah. and so we were like okay let's Why? let's stop doing this yeah um so now yeah. i mean we still have a pool and we still have a yard guy we but still have a pool like oh the HOA, a community pool a community right pool. right yeah like, <laughs> so but like yeah but your like, kids get to play with other kids in the neighborhood too. exactly I mean, like and yeah it's less yeah, yeah, yeah because wealth can isolate you in your own backyard without yeah. you knowing that point well and that was one of the other things was i kind of didn't want the kids growing up thinking that that was what normal was is. normal mm, yeah, um great point and so and i think actually on your podcast in <laughs> in one of your discussions with your guests, you, there was a discussion that you always try to, you know, be at least to borrow with your neighbors, if not just a little bit more. So, sure. you know, again, moving out here, it's like we can be comfortable and we're not yeah. always striving to be the next yeah. I think that's thing on the block. I think that's the a huge misconception that people have is like that money is a is an avenue to demonstrate how much money you have. Whereas it's like the best part about money is not being stressed about money. Exactly. Right. Like, yeah. don't buy stuff that you're going to have to do something, a job that you don't like to be able to provide for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's I mean, and how great... much more house did somebody need than, right. even, than yeah. this? Even this, I was, I was up for going even smaller. What is this, 3,800 square feet? 30, I don't even 30 know. Something. 33? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great size house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, But yeah, I mean, and I think that was us as well. We were just like, okay, we don't need much. I think for me, only thing I wanted was I just wanted a basement. So like that was yeah. the only like yeah. like caveat for me. But like, yeah, I mean, this is much different than our last house and much different like approach and like much different subdivision. And like our last house was in like 18 homes in the subdivision had like a crazy HOA, which I was the president of. But also like it just felt like we were trying to keep up with stuff. Yeah. It wasn't needed. Yeah. yeah. So back to the family thing. Yeah, they yeah. were confused to go from that house to this house. Sold my Mercedes SUV, got a mini Honda minivan. I mean, you know, all the things. Do you miss it? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. I like the minivan too. <laughs> all right. What kind of a relationship with money do you want your kids to have? That's such a good question because I know that we influence them so greatly, whether or not we are realizing it in our everyday conversations. I want them to know that that if they work hard, um, I want them to love what they do. I mean, that's I think that's my biggest thing. I want them to love what they do. And if they work hard, that money is abundant, that it's there for them. They just have to figure out the the ways and and put in the hard work to get it. Yeah. It feels like with our kids, we're starting to realize a lot of the stuff that we were sort of ingrained in where I don't think I was put in like clubs and all this other stuff for anything that I wanted to do. It was just, you're just going to do it because my parents said we were going to do it. Um, Even though like I wanted to play basketball for a very long time, but my parents would not let me play basketball. But I was really passionate about basketball. And then I got tall. I was like, I really want to play basketball. And I didn't play a lick of basketball literally till I got to college. Mm. But I wanted to play badly. And so like... And you're what, 6'6"? 6'4". 6'4". Yeah, so like... I think what we've realized, especially with our kids, is like we've found that our kids are passionate about some things. Like our oldest is like scientist, engineer, 
he's just going to figure something out. And so we've enveloped and do things for that. Our, you know, middle is a great gymnast, put her in gym stuff and let's like, and not worry about like trying to do all the other stuff that you're supposed to do rather just let's do this thing that we know you're sort of passionate about. Right. And so I think helping our kids find their passion is very, very important to us. And I think the relationship with money, even though we haven't like talked about it, my hope is I don't think they have a bad relationship with money at the moment, but we definitely want them to have a healthy relationship with money. But we also don't want them to really to struggle because I don't think I struggled, but I've seen some, I also grew up seeing all those uh, kids that also had like the money money did not make them happy. And I think for me, I never want money to define the relationship between like the parents and the son or anything like that as a defining thing that defines your relationship as a family. So I think I'm striving. My hope is that we never do that to our kids where they feel like money becomes something that they have to go get or they have to like figure out at a young age. All right, I'm gonna wrap up in just a second. Is there anything you guys wanted to talk about before we wrap up? Something you mentioned in your podcast about the comedy thing and like the money thing and what you're figuring out with comedy, but this we could probably have that offline. <laughs> what I'm figuring about comedy is yeah. uh, the harder I work, the more money I lose. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the last, the past two weekends and next weekend, I'm considering to be a huge success because I'm only losing like $200 per weekend. Nice. Going to Ohio to do comedy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, talking about what you want for your kids, I think the example you're setting for, you know, downsizing a little bit while you figure out the life you want to lead, I think it's a brilliant example you're setting for your kids. And I greatly appreciate you all sharing your stories and your relationship with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Paul. Yoshi and Diana Sadiq, thank you very much. Appreciate it, Paul. Thank you. So Paul just went to the non-binary bathroom and we were still talking. What'd you want to say, hon? So after answering, having that discussion and answering some of those questions that Paul had, it really made me start thinking and realizing that, you know, looking back growing up, I didn't really feel like money was a struggle because my dad just always made money available to us and and didn't always show that he had worked so hard to attain the level of education and the the type of job he had. So growing up, I don't think I appreciated it as much as I should have. At the time, it was just, you know, I needed braces, I got braces. I wanted a car, I got a car. And now that I'm older and have kids and just have a little more reflection, I can really sit back and and feel so much like love and gratitude for how hard he worked, especially coming over as an immigrant and how you know dedicated he was of course to his family and to saving and to teaching us how important education is and to save money and really set ourselves up to always feel financially stable i just have so much gratitude for that because it's made our life easier and it's also kind of a realization that you know money is his love language and all of that effort he put into teaching us about money and being financially responsible and saving was his like way of just showering us with love. And that's just really special. And I, I so grateful to kind of have that insight now as we're getting older, um, that we didn't have before. 
Thank you, Yoshi and Diana. It was a pleasure spending some time with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and insights with our audience. Best of luck to you and your family in balancing that need for financial stability with your passions and your commitment to your beautiful children. Hey, folks, if you like what we're doing here on Crazy Money, please take a few minutes and scroll down to the bottom of this here page if you're on your mobile phone and throw us a, a nice rating there and or review the show. Say some nice things about me and about Mike Carano, our, our very talented editor here, and our wonderful guest. I sure would appreciate it. If you happen to be in the Memphis area next week, I'll be headlining a show at Local Gastropub Downtown. Local Gastropub Downtown on Thursday, September 16th. September, January, January 16th. And if a whole bunch of people come at, to the 7 o'clock show, there's only like 10 tickets left. We sell all those. Shit, maybe I'll do one at 9 o'clock. Who knows? Hey, thanks again for listening. Happy New Year. Go make it a great one.